you can make a digital twin of mm. the museum in Cairo, preserved in the permafrost in the Arctic for perpetuity. And I think it's a higher probability that it survives there than the physical assets actually will do in Egypt. Because mm. look what happened just recently during the earthquake in Turkey, a catastrophe of enormous proportions. Also, a lot of very old cultural heritage was completely destroyed and lost due to that earthquake. There is such immense amount of threats to both physical objects, cultural heritage memory, and the digital objects in the digital domain. So one needs to take some action to make sure it can survive in its authentic form. Welcome to the Mr. Rat Show, where I talk to the most interesting global personalities about the future of humanity. Hello, beautiful humans. Today, I'm extremely excited to welcome two Norwegian entrepreneurs. But first, I want you to imagine the world 500 years from now. Let's say it's the 29th of March of the year 2523. What will the world look like? What about all the beautiful buildings we've built in the past 500 years or the technology, the code that we've written in the past 50 years? Well, today I'm extremely excited to welcome these two entrepreneurs that are making sure that a thousand years from now, our descendants can have access to humanity's most precious assets. And listen to this. They do this by storing these assets in a vault located deep inside an Arctic mountain between Norway and the North Pole. How cool is that? What an honor, Katrin, Rune. How are you doing? Fordan Hadude. <laughs> oh, hello. Thank you for a nice introduction. We are doing great. Thank you. We are then sitting in Norway with the fresh new snow outside, so it's cold. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> well, I'm in Berlin and it's sunny, oh, lucky finally. <laughs> Let's start with the basic, Katrin and, and Rune. Explain people why is your job and what you're doing important. Yes, so my name is Rune Bjerkestrand. So I'm the founder, I'm the managing director of uh, basically two uh, entities, uh, Pickle, which has a unique uh, data storage technology. And this uh, vault, uh, which will be the key focus today, the Arctic World Archive on the island of Svalbard uh, in the Arctic Ocean. And why do you think it's this, this is important, what, what you're doing? Why do you think it's important to store humanity's most precious asset with your technology and in your archive between Norway and the yes. North Pole? Um, well, if you read the news every day, uh, the world is actually in quite dramatic change. There is uh, wars, there is war in Europe, uh, there is uh, cyber hacking, ransomware uh, in the newspapers every day, <clears throat> even in this little country in the north with Norway, five and a half million people. There's headlines about companies uh, being hacked, data being manipulated, <clears throat> data being deleted. So we think it's very important to actually preserve things which are world memory and which is describing the world as it has been historically and as the world actually is today to make sure that that information can be brought authentically into the future so that future generations can trust what they read and see and hear and not, not and question, how, you know, yeah. that if this actually happened or not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that, I guess that's very important to make sure that people in the future know what happened to what, what, what was the, the truth of our current times, but how do you, so I, I would like to start also by understanding how do you find these treasures? Maybe you can take us through the journey of a, an institution, let's say you were talking before we went on about an institution from Brazil or Mexico that is going to deposit some of their assets in this, um, archive in the middle of between Norway and the North Pole. Mm -hmm. How, how does it go? How maybe take us through the journey, Rune. Okay. Uh, so firstly, we don't find the treasures, so it's not. We are not the one to decide what is really world memory or not. It's up to the institutions themselves, up to the companies and corporations and up to the individuals to decide 
seen from their perspective what is important to keep authentically and to make sure it's sent into the future. And they have different kind of motivation. It could be because some institutions are obliged by law to keep certain information. Other museums, for example, galleries, they keep things because it has a value, an intellectual value, a commercial value, historical value. So there's a lot of reasons why you want to preserve something for the future. So our role is actually to enable that, but also importantly, not to curate, but to make sure that what is deposited is actually within the laws and rules of Norway and the world. That's an important aspect. Okay. So you don't curate, you just make sure that it's legal, basically, yes, correct. within the Norwegian yeah. Yeah. Uh, law yeah. system. Correct. And, and the recommendations from, you know, the international institutions and organizations and bodies that have a saying and an opinion on this matter. Okay. So, I mean, I'm imagining, I'm going to put myself in your shoes and think, you know, I wake up one day and I think, oh, there's so many assets in the world that I would like to store for the future of humanity. And I would like my descendants to see them in, you know, 500, 800 years from now. How do you know which assets are ready to be stored in the vault? And, you know, how do you, how do you get there? Because I can't imagine, oh, I would love to store the, the 3D scans of the Eiffel Tower or the Empire State or yeah. Yeah. something like yeah. this. How do you, how do you find those? Or how, how do they find you in a way? How do you, do you somehow influence that or how do, how do you get there? A good and interesting question, and I can basically answer with questioning you. How did you find us? <laughs> well, I spent uh, a half of my days uh, researching interesting entrepreneurs and projects. So that's how I found you. Yeah. And uh, Pickle, uh, the mother company, is based in Norway, but we have partners all around the world. They do also spread the news and the interesting aspects about our technology and also the archive. A lot of people hear about them through their national pickle partner. That's a good, that's a good bridge to the technology because I know pickle is the technology, the company that builds the technology behind the storing mm -hmm. of all these treasures. Yeah. Maybe you can tell me a bit more about that. Yes, the technology is, of course, a very, very important fundament for the whole thing. Uh, since it's the technology that enables the lifetime of the data, it's the technology also that enables that the data can never be hacked or deleted or manipulated. So basically to ensure the authenticity and the integrity of the data in the future. So what Pickle has developed is a technology where data is written as bits and bytes uh, to photosensitive film. So photosensitive film uh, was, for those that have never touched film, what was capturing images in camera before. It was also what was used to screen uh, films in the theaters, in the movie theaters before. So we came from that industry. So Pickle came from that industry working with film. And then we saw it's a fantastic information carrier that actually has proven that it can carry information from the past into the future, the last 150 so years. So going back to the early first movies made by the Lumiere brothers uh, in France, and also to George, East, George Eastman establishing Kodak, that technology has proven that it could carry those images from then until now in a very good condition and actually could tell the truth about what things looks, looked like in the past. So that's the starting point for us. Then we thought, okay, if it can carry visual images, couldn't it also be used to carry data? So what we did is that we converted the film technology to be a digital information carrier. And by doing that, you got all the benefits uh, from that information carrier, the longevity, because it had already proven itself for 150 years. Further, film has been used uh, yeah, since the Second World War in the shape and form of microfilm. And that has been kind of uh, accepted to be an information carrier that can last 500 years. So at the outset, we had a quite nice fundament to convert this into a digital information carrier. 
So what we do is that we receive any kind of data, a database, an audio recording, a video, a document, a scanned 3D object, like you mentioned, the Eiffel Tower. We haven't done the Eiffel Tower, but we could do it. All that ends up in a stream of bits and bytes, and that's written to the film. It has super high resolution QR code, so if you can visualize the QR code, but it has so had such high resolution that you can hardly anymore see that secure code. That's how the bits and the bytes are stored and preserved. But then there is a very important aspect on this film because it's a visual medium. You can still see what is there. So you can hold it against the sun and you can see with your bare eyes what's there. You cannot, of course, understand the data because that's a super high resolution QR code. But you can, we have made it self-contained. And we have another word in Norwegian, which is different than self-contained, but imagine yourself that you had been to Bodø, right? And in Norway, and in Norway, there's a lot of wilderness and there's high mountain plateaus. So if you want to cross one of those high mountain plateaus in winter, which will take you three, four days, you need to pack everything in the backpack that you need to have to survive a winter storm, because you could be mid on that mountain and suddenly the big storm comes in the frost minus 25 degrees and you have to dig yourself into a hole in the snow and you need to have everything there to survive food loads where things you can heat with etc the same is with the film so we made it self-contained so since it's visual you can actually include and clear text instructions on how mm -hmm. to understand the medium how to take that qr code and convert it back to the original file and an important part of the technology when you want to store it long-term is also that we convert any proprietary file formats, like for example, uh, Microsoft Word, which is a proprietary format. We convert that to open source Adobe PDF slash A, which is an open source license-free format. So then we have a format that can live where we can include the file format description and the source code of the Adobe reader. So in the future, when somebody finds the film, it's enough to hold it against the light source and then you can understand everything. And you basically have everything in your hands that you need to get the data back and to actually see and understand the data. So it's a very unique technology, you know, at the, as a fundament for the whole thing. Was that, was that understandable? I think that's understandable, but I want to break it into pieces. Yeah. Just so we understand it better. Mm -hmm. So. Maybe you can give us an example, like a real, real case example of one of your institutions, one of your clients that already is storing. So, okay. So first of all, just to be clear, because yeah. some people get, when I, when I talk to some people in my network and told them about this conversation, they started asking me, oh, okay, so they can, they can also store jewelry and physical objects in the vault and stuff like that. And, and no, that's not the case, right? We're talking about digital assets or assets that could be physical, but they get digitized and then right. stored in the yeah. vault. Yeah, yeah, correct. Right? Yeah, absolutely correct. And it, but it can be, be pretty much anything. It, yes, and it, it could be yourself. I mean, you mm. could do a, a high resolution 3D scan of yourself. You create a 3D model. My right. digital twin. Your digital twin, yes, mm -hmm. which is always your friend. We'll always never do anything else than what you do. Yeah. But you could con that is converted to a huge 3D model. Which is, which is a huge file, which is a stream of bits and bytes. Who and does that conversion? Sorry. Do well, you do it or? We can also help with doing the conversion from physical to digital, from analog mm. to digital. So mm -hmm. just as examples, you, you wanted some examples. The Norwegian National Museum, they have a huge collection of famous paintings. Uh, one of these famous paintings that your listeners might know is the scream from the Norwegian painter Edvard Munch. So they have done a very high resolution scan of that painting in colors with X-ray, with UV and infrared light. So they can actually see behind the paint and, and the canvas and everything. And that generates a lot of uh, images, digital images that you can actually see on your computer screen. So those are then uh, sent to us and we write them to film. So the first thing we do is that we put them into packages and then those packages are converted to light and it's the light which is writing the QR codes on the film. So there's a step here that converts data to light because film is exposed by light. So that means that these paintings is ending up as QR codes on a flat strip of film 
And when you in the future, sorry, but what do you mean with, with QR codes? Just like a regular QR code that just, was just that regular. we all know. Yeah, just imagine okay. a regular QR code, except that it's much much bigger, much much bigger. You can hardly see the small black and white dots. Mm. So there's okay. a very very high resolution QR code. And another example is that we did the project last year where we did a high resolution 3D scan of Taj Mahal, the Indian UNESCO World Heritage Monument. And then we had a team that were there for three weeks doing high resolution capturing with a lot of different technologies and ending up with a huge amount of images. I think it was like 1.6 million images, which is then put together to create a 3D model of Taj Mahal. That ends up to be a huge data file in turn that we write onto the film as these QR codes. So we can help to do that conversion from physical and analog to digital, but you can also give us your digital file. So this program, this, this podcast, once it's done, it's a, it's an audio file. You can send us yeah. that audio file and we convert that audio file to light. And that light is creating the QR codes on film. And in the future, the QR code is converted back to the original, I guess it's a WAV file. And then the bomb file can be listened because that's an open source format where the playback software can also be on the film. But wait, so I don't understand what you mean that it's converted to light. What do you mean with that? Film, have you ever worked with film? No. No. Film is a photosensitive medium. Before you had film cameras that took pictures, it was not with a digital chip inside. It was with a strip of film. Yeah. And then you have an, a lens in front and you have a shutter and you open the shutter and the film is exposed to light. That light created a picture of what you were pointing at with the camera. Yeah. So then you have the, the, the picture on camera and once you have done the picture, you develop the film, you put it through a, a, a photochemical process and then the picture becomes visible on the film. Then you can hold it against the light and you can see it. It's physical. It's there. Mm. So to create that QR code on film, you need light. So we are painting the QR code, writing the QR code onto the film with light. So if someone finds this in hundred years from 500 years from now, they're gonna, what are they gonna find? So they will find in the article archive, they will find a box, which is called a pickle box on that pickle box. There is a label. That basically explains high level what this is, so they can understand. Then they can. In what language is that? In English? It's in English, or it's your desired language. <clears throat> so we we typically we have some clients like GitHub, which is preserving you know the open source source code. They have five or six languages, not on the label, but you know on the film itself to explain to the world what this is. So most commonly used languages. And then. What you do is that you open the box and you take out the film, you hold the end of the film against the, the sun or a light source, and you can read with your bare eyes and understand what this is. This is a data storage medium. This contains the paintings of Edvard Munch from the National Museum in Norway. If you want to get these paintings back so that you can see them, you need to do this and this and this. And if you do mm. this and this and this, you're ending up with seeing Edward Munch's scream on your computer of the future. Like you said, it's self-contained. So everything is within that yeah. hardware. <clears throat> and this hardware is the what, what Pickle also develops. Is, is that correct? It's the Pickle this, film. This That's shell. the information carrier. That's the Pickle film. It's okay. The, it's a reel of photosensitive film. And I, I guess it's difficult to imagine this if you never touched and seen film before. Uh, I mean, I've seen, I, I was a kid, but yeah, I, I, I know what film looks like and how it feels, the, yeah, yeah. the, the structure of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So Pickle develops this technology and it, you say that it, it could last a thousand years, but what is the mm, material um, around it that, that protects the film? Because I, I understand the film is very delicate as well or not. Well, it's actually quite robust. So <clears throat> the base of the film, uh, there's a there's a kind of substrate which carries um, the photosensitive material. It's a it's a polyester base. So that 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 base itself has a lifetime of you know, fifteen hundred, two thousand, three thousand years. It's it's a really long, long lifetime substrate. <clears throat> On that polyester base, it's a layer of silver halides. So it's silver. And silver is light sensitive. 
So when you expose silver for light, it creates an image. And that image is the QR code. Okay. Why a QR code? Because a QR code is a very, and, and that's another philosophical angle of what we did. Because when we developed this, we wanted the whole thing to be extremely robust, extremely secure, guarantee authenticity, could not be hacked, but also make it very simple to get the data back. Because mm -hmm. technology today is becoming more and more complex and depending on very complex software solutions and actually a lot of expertise and very dependent actually on people as well to make technology run. So we wanted to make something, as I mentioned, that was self-contained and that was so simple that anyone could actually understand how to uh, get the data back. So that's a fundamental principle. And then after some research, it became pretty obvious that to use the concept of a QR code, which is a very well-known concept, very well-established concept. It's used all over the world, you know, for prices and links to web pages and user guides and, and everything. So it's a very well-known, very, very well understood concept. So what we did was to enhance that, expand that concept of the QR code into the super high resolution QR code, which is on the pickle film. So it's just to make it very simple so that you don't need a PhD to really understand what you find, but it could be you, it could be me, it could be Katrina that could find it and would intuitively and logically understand how to deal with it and to get the data back. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to wrap my he head around it because it, kind of assuming that in 500 years from now, people will know what a QR code means. Is that, is that a correct assumption in a way? That's are, we, are we making? Actually. That's not necessary. Oh. You don't really okay. need to understand anything. Okay. Uh, you can you be know. like a complete ignorant of our times and still find that piece of hardware and still know what that is or what's have, inside. Have you seen the, the Pixar animation movie Wally? I think no. No. But that's uh, a thousand years or something into the future. The world is completely changed. The world has been uh, attacked. The world is completely destroyed. There's almost nothing left. There's a huge dump of equipment and technology. Mm -hmm. And then there is this mechanical little thing that comes to life, which is a kind of robot. And he walks around on the dump. There's nobody else. It's dark. It's dead. It's yeah. And then he finds an old VHS cassette. You remember this VHS cassette? Yeah, yeah. sure. And then he's looking at this VHS cassette. What is this you know, strange thing? And then he's looking at his, himself. And then, you know, in his, in his belly, there's like a slit slot mm -hmm. where he actually puts the VHS cassette inside. And suddenly that VHS cassette comes to life because it happens that in, in that Wally robot that came to life, it was a VHS player. And then suddenly he could see the world as it was many hundred years ago, and then he could understand. And then that understanding enabled him to bring things to life again. Mm. So the whole, there's a philosophical fundament here that it should be so simple, requires so little technology that you can take it as it is and bring it to life from what you have. And, and if there is people in the future, there needs to be light. That's a, that's a fact because without light, people will not live. Okay. So you have people, you have light. And in the future, if there is light and people, there is mostly like, most likely something that can capture that light. And what is it that can capture light? Do you think? What do you mean? Anything. I mean, even like the skin can capture light. Yes, but uh, something else, which is like a technology that can capture light. What captures light? Mm, plants. Uh... Mm -hmm. Good. But also a camera captures light. Camera. Okay. A camera captures <laughs> light and make a picture of that light. Okay. So if you have a light, if you have a camera, and if you have a camera, you most likely also has a com you have a computer. So there's a human that has light, that has a camera, that has a computer of the future. It can be any kind of computing device. It just needs to be able to add ones and zeros. Mm -hmm. Then you have what you need to get the data back. You're okay. not depending on a Blu-ray. You're not de depending on a specific interface. You're not depending on a specific software. You're not depending on anything other than what is actually available in the future and what is on that film.
How many customers or institutions have so far stored or archived their assets in your vault? So in the Arctic World Archive now, there is around 60 plus institutions that has made around 90 deposits and they come from 25 countries in the world. Okay. And those 90 deposits, is there a cap? Like, do you, I imagine, do you have like a physical space that is obviously limited? Um, is there a cap to that? Not really, because we are in a decommissioned mine, uh, which is huge. And there's a lot of vaults in that mine. I don't dare to say we can store all the world's data there, but there's a lot of space. So, uh, just give us a challenge and we make it fit. <laughs> I'll give you this challenge. Imagine, so I was recently in Cairo and I had the chance to visit both the Egyptian museum, which is the older museum, a bit cramped and chaotic. Yeah. And also the grand, well. I've been there you, well. you've been there. All right. Yeah. Cool. So, you know, you know, which one it's a bit chaotic, it's a beautiful place, but it's a bit all over the place. Right. Yes. And then there is this other grand Egyptian museum that they're still building, mm -hmm. it's not officially open, but I had the chance to also go in. And the kind of, you know, you can imagine or you, you understand, uh, Rune, if you've been there, the kind of treasures they have, the masterpieces, yeah. the assets, yeah. they're incredibly valuable for our civilization. Mm -hmm. You even have this super famous gold mask of Tutankhamon. Mm -hmm. And you also have a lot of assets with this hieroglyphics telling a story, yeah. but it's a story that even now we don't really fully understand. We don't know really what they actually meant with all these hieroglyphics mm. or all these figures. Um, and same happens in Mexico with the Mayas and the Aztecs, the Incas in Peru and mm. all these previous civilizations. And we're talking about obviously more than a thousand years from now, but the challenge that I give you now is how can we make sure that what we start today can be decoded tomorrow? And you went through this a bit, but... Does it go through your head sometimes that this is still, still challenging in a way? What do you think about this? The biggest challenge there is actually to get the finances, to get the things converted from that physical form into some digital form that can actually be preserved forever. That's the biggest channel, challenge actually that there is. Uh, so funding. Funding is a huge challenge to protect the world's human memory. It would be an amazing thing if we could help the Egyptian museum, you know, to to convert everything, uh, because what you do then, you make it into 3D models. You can extract a lot of metadata so that you can learn and understand a lot more about the things. You can link all this together, and then you suddenly can make all that available as well. Only Not only for those that comes to the museum, but people that want to make virtual visits. Mm. And once you have that, you can actually put it on pickle film, and you could put the whole Egyptian museum into the Arctic World Archive. So you can make a digital twin of mm. the museum in Cairo preserved in the permafrost in the Arctic for perpetuity. And I think it's a higher probability that it survives there than the physical assets actually will do in Egypt. Because mm. look what happened just recently during the earthquake in Turkey. A disaster, a human disaster, a catastrophe of enormous proportions. Also, a lot of uh, a very old cultural heritage was completely destroyed and lost due to that earthquake. So due to the world's change, climate change, wars, terrorism, there is such immense amount of threats to both physical objects, cultural heritage, memory, and the digital objects in the digital domain. So one actually needs to take some action to make sure it can survive in its authentic form. So in the case of Turkey, now that you bring that up, if we think of maybe some monuments, some landmarks that got destroyed, unfortunately, because of the earthquake, if you would have digitized those assets before with your technology and then store them in the Arctic world, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, Arctic world uh, archive, between Norway and the North Pole. We would have the digital files, the digital twins of that, and we would be able basically to go back to that and, and 
if we wanted, if we had the funding to reconstruct that important piece of history. Is yeah. that correct? Yes, that's correct. You could. So that's basically the, the whole point of you storing them digitally. Yes, yes. And you can, first of all, you could use it to display. People could see, people could learn, people could understand. I mean, it could be used for education. It could use to, I mean, you need the past to have a future. Uh, and if you can trust the past, I think you will have a better future. But you can also use the whole thing to actually 3D print the whole object in the future. Right. And you can imagine if you had this this thing of the world as it was 2,000 years ago, right? To be able to actually see and understand authentically what physically was there. Right, right. So basically like a digital twin of our world 2,000, 3,000 years ago. I mean, that would be fantastic. And like you said, that would be, our education would be much better off without so many question marks compared to what we have today. Yes, and the world forgets very, very quickly, unfortunately. We, we are getting kind of smarter, but also kind of more stupid. Mm. Uh, and I've been In what to, sense? No, well, I, I've been to India at some amazing museums and institutions that have manuscripts which are written on palm leaves that are 2,000 years old. And somehow they are in excellent physical condition. And there's written things in these, uh, these manuscripts in languages nobody understands, mm -hmm. but which is very sophisticated science. So we mm. digitized uh, or, or we converted or we 3D scanned uh, an old called Haparan village in India, which is several thousand years old. They had um, running water. They had uh, sewage, toilet systems. So the, there has been inventions and technology in the past, which has just been forgotten because it has, it wasn't visible anymore. They couldn't see it, right? It's, it's gone, destroyed in wars or catastrophes. So wait, you digitized this manuscripts or the no, whole city? No, we haven't done, we haven't, we haven't, ah, haven't done the, that. The whole city with it, the, the whole city with it. We 3D scanned the whole city. Ah, you 3D scanned the whole city. Yeah. So that's not preserved in the article archive as well. Oh, that's fantastic. So how do you do, how did you do that? Uh, we had the team uh, with around 10, 12 people, which was working day and night with a lot of different kind of 3D scanning devices and cameras to capture uh, basically every single stone because this is a kind of stone city. Uh, and that is then assembled into a huge 3D model. Hmm. So these things are... And this was commissioned by the city or...? It was commissioned by the Archaeological Survey of India. Mm. So yeah, this is an archaeological wrong. interesting place for, for India, is, for the world. It's a, wonder, it's a UNESCO World Heritage, mm. actually. Together with, uh, we, did, we did the three sites as a pilot project. One is Taj Mahal, one is this Harappan city, and the other one uh, is uh, um, a kind of Stone Age settlement in caves. Mm -hmm. where where people lived and actually where they created art which was ending up to be more visible uh, after 3D scanning because you could see it with different uh, te te technologies. You could see it more clearly. We also mm -hmm. have done another important project in India which is a forgotten city which is a kind of uh, I mean it reminds me of a Mickey Mouse story because, you know, there was this, uh, and this is not a Mickey Mouse story, there's a real story. There was a, a British soldier which was out uh, hunting for a tiger and he was out in the jungle and then suddenly he saw a kind of a crack in a, in a, in a mountain and there was a kind of light inside so he, he went in and inside there was a completely forgotten city, village, built in caves called Ajanta Caves. And important memories from there, cave paintings has also been 3D scanned and put into the Arctic World Archive. Yeah, that's very interesting. When you scan this infrastructure of cities, like this one that you just mentioned, do you, is there any way of, in a way, storing the, the stories that happen in the city? For example, you told me that in the past, this city that you visited in India had clean water and sewage. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but this is a piece of information that you cannot get. Maybe, maybe you could actually, but um, some stories cannot, they're not physically present. You know what I mean? They're part of the culture. Mm -hmm. um, is there a way to also insert those stories within a sort of 3D scan of a infrastructure of a city or something like this? Or mm -hmm. Yes, 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 there is. And that's actually very, very important. Um, of course, now using the modern technologies of AI and machine learning, you can collect, I mean, everything which is available online, you can collect and you can link it to certain uh, objects. So for example, this, this village in itself, you can actually crawl the internet and you can find relevant information, which could be curated, could be non-curated. So of course you never know the kind of authenticity right. of it. The source. Yeah, but you could, you could link it all together so that you can create a virtual visit, which is not only to see, but to learn. Uh, because you're collecting information and linking it to the object. So you could actually create virtual travels across time and space by having all this in the digital domain and link it together. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. This so is for very example, interesting. This is very interesting because if, I mean, we Norwegians, we are quite, you know, humble and shy. We live here up in the north. But there was a period of time where we were a bit more forward-leaning and aggressive. That was in the Viking era. Yeah. And then on the Friday night, we were, bo we were bored. We didn't have anything to do. Okay, we went out in the forest. We picked some magic mushroom and we had uh, a party and we got oh. crazy. And Interesting. We went back <laughs> to the Viking ships and we rode across uh, the north. Is this like a real story? Like did Vikings yeah, yeah, actually yeah, yeah. take I'm, mushrooms? I'm, I'm, I'm Viking blood myself, so I, I, I can prove mm. it. Wow. Well, and then, then on Friday night, we got crazy. Uh, All right. The Viking ships, we rode across to Scotland. And I can prove it because my closest DNA matches are Scottish. Ah, so, so then we, we, we plundered and we raped and we went further south. Uh, we went down to, to England. We went over to, uh, to Paris. We even went down to, to Turkey and Constantinople, which was uh, Istanbul. We went through the rivers across, you know, that goes today to Russia and Ukraine and into the Black Sea. So you can just imagine when you can link these information together. And you have these objects digitized, you have them accessible, and you start to link this information. You can imagine what an amazing travel you can do in the virtual space and what the kind of education and knowledge that you can get when you start yeah. to link this kind of information together. Yeah. Very interesting. And so, yeah, okay, travel through time and space, that's fantastic. If you have a digital twin of a city in India or yeah, yeah. if we would have been able to do that sort of um archive, do this, i mean there's i mean you can have this vision right and i have this vision but to do it to enable it you need actually to have the information you need to have the data you need to have the 3d scans you need to have the documents you need to have the digitized photographies audio recordings uh, manuscripts mm -hmm. you need to have it mm -hmm. and that's and why the, i also say that there's a, the biggest problem is actually lack of financing to get things done the funding yeah so so what, what how, how can we get there how can we make sure we have this funding. Is it about awareness? You guys, you haven't been for 50. How long have you been doing this actually? We have, uh, the Pickle was established in 2002 and uh, the article Orca Archive, it opened in 2017. Okay, so the Article Archive is kind of new. Yeah. Relatively new. Yeah. Yes, correct. So is it about awareness or is it about the willingness of maybe political institutions or governmental world institutions to actually do this? Or what do you think is the main challenge for not getting the funding? Mm -hmm. I think that there are so many things going on in the world. So, and so many things that politicians need to take action on. So maybe um, in their mind, they're not that aware about the importance of doing something about their history today. Yeah. So yeah, I, I can think, imagine. Yeah. So I think then to make them more aware about it and also uh, then uh, say how important it is to do action now will make them understand how important it is to do something. Is there a way to link this to ROIs, like return on investment? Because if I'm an investor and I have the chance to invest in a company that is going to give me 
a certain percentage per year um, on return. Com and I compare that to um, investing a bunch of the same amount of money on digitizing maybe my city or my culture or my territory, uh, my infrastructure. I would go with the one that gives me a better percentage. I would say normally invest investors would think yeah. like this. Um, mm -hmm. So is there a way to like make this more attractive in the sense that you could think of uh, if you digitize your territory or your city, let's say the city of Paris, you'll be able to store that part of your history, of your culture, of your city and monetize it with like what Rune was saying before, digital tours through space and time forever and ever. And that's, that's kind of like putting the dollar sign in their minds in a way. Uh, I'm, I'm sure maybe you thought about this before, but is there something is this something that could could be viable? What do you guys think? Uh, it is, of course, difficult to put a dollar sign behind the importance of history. But if you compare it to the cost of uh, keeping uh, data alive, for example, online, it's, to keep something for like 100 years is quite expensive. Uh, so I think if you can imagine that you can just store your data and put it away, and once and for all, and take it back, it, uh, then you can have a look at the uh, economical benefits of it. Mm, okay, so it's about it's about cutting expenses more than... And also, uh, our solution is then much more environmentally uh, friendly. Mm, okay, how is that? But I, I have a perspective on this, because mm. I've been to very many interesting archives in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think this can be a super big source of revenue for the institutions uh, that sits on the content. They just need to make it available. And I saw a little article the other day about all the money which is spent by HBO, Netflix, and Disney to create content. Because the world is so hungry for content. And, and, and please excuse me, but uh, there's a lot of crap content being created. In the real world, there is so much, so much drama, there is so much science, there is so much romance. There is so much content that is there that people have never seen. Just in that one giant library outside Ahmedabad in Gujarat in India, there could be enough content to fill history channels for tens of years mm. with things that would blow us away. So with the right person, with the right perspective, to kind of create a Netflix of human history, culture. There is so much available. You just need to find it. You just need to convert it. You need to understand it and make it available. It will be a huge source of revenue because people are hungry for real content. It's there, but it's a little bit challenging to pick it up. I have been into film archives. I remember once I was in Istanbul and uh, uh, it was a, an amazing institution, amazing people, but they don't have any money. They showed me their film archive, archive. It was a huge, huge basement. Imagine almost like a soccer field full of film cans dating back from the early 20s. And this was at the time of the modern Turkey was created with, you know, the big father of Turkey, Atatürk. Yeah. And I'm sure there are golden nuggets in that archive that would make a fortune. But to have the funds to digitize it and make it accessible is always a challenge. So if you can spread this challenge to the philanthropists out there in the world with the big money, this is an investment that will pay back immensely. That's my opinion. Hmm. So I'll, I will go back to the sustainable part of, of things, Katrin, but I want to touch, I want to pick up on that, what you said just now, Rune, because I think that what I see in the world developing is all these new technologies are making stuff cheaper, stuff like digitizing a building or 3D scanning a whole city and, yep. you know, creating a digital twin yep. on it. It's just getting cheaper. And you see a lot of companies like Snap, Snapchat or um, Ace Wall, which is owned by Niantic, they, they do uh, augmented reality, uh, web augmented reality. And so they're very interested in scan. And, and of course, you say you have Google Maps and stuff like that, scanning the cities. 
So they're very interested in creating this digital twins of pretty much everything. And so I feel like the more, you know, corporations and, and companies invest and startups invest in this, the more VC money goes into this, the more content will be able to put on sort of on the cloud or on the internet, or at least digitize it, the cheaper it will get. So I, I kind of have a hope for picking out that story that you told about Turkey, that all these museums in 50 years from now that are maybe in emerging countries that don't have the funding right now will have a technology maybe on their phones where they can just easily digitize everything they have. And there's going to be so much, like you said, so many gold nuggets to explore to break down into super cool, interesting content. Because I, I agree with you that the world is full of shit content. <laughs> we don't need that anymore. Uh, we don't need the TikTok, TikTokers uh, around as much anymore. We need more stories that are beneficial and educative for all of us. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> so I, I, have, I, have, I have good feelings about this. I think uh, technology is, is, again, it's getting cheaper and it will help us uh, digitize more and more. And I think the trends are there. People are talking about digitizing everything now, which is, you know, some people see this as negative, but it has a lot of uh, good, good things and good opportunities. Mm. But yeah, um, so when you digitize and, and, and we go to the sustainable part, I think with this, uh, when you digitize something and um, you store it in one of your vaults, it's stored there, right? It's offline. It's off the grid. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Correct. So now I'm a client that I want to say, oh, I want to retrieve it because I want to. Okay. So first of all, I'm, I'm the client and I, I go there and let's say I'm the museum of Brasilia in Brazil and I'm storing some treasures of my country. I go and store a physical copy of my assets there in your vault and it's off, off the grid. So I'm paying much less and it's much more secure than if I would have it in the, in the cloud. I guess, but I also want to have it in the cloud because I want people to access virtually my museum. I guess this is possible, right? Is this something that institutions do? Is your clients do it like this or? Yes. So we have made it now very easy to, first of all, become a client. You can do that online. So we in Pickle also have a cloud service so that you can upload your data. <clears throat> and then you can also do some value-added services where you can add metadata, you can generate thumbnails, you can structure it, you can create like an archive so that you can easily search and find. <clears throat> that can remain uh, available online as a part of the service. But we also write the same thing onto films. We will have exactly the same metadata indexing information on the film. You can decide to keep everything online, but you can also decide to keep nothing online. Okay. Uh, you can also decide only to have the metadata online. So it's, a, it's, it's up to your choice. If you want to have it instantly available, if you want to have it uh, called archive online, or if you only want to have the metadata so that you can search and find and then request a retrieval from the pickle film later on. Okay. Interesting. And so when it comes to sustainability, why is this more sustainable than storing everything on the cloud? Yeah. When you store your data online, uh, you need a lot of electricity to keep it alive. But when you store it on a pickle film, you store it once and you can just leave it there. So, for example, in the article archive, AVA, we do not need any electricity to change the temperature inside the mine. So uh, we can just put the pickle films inside there for hundreds of years. And when you need it, you can just take it out. All right. And the, does, is this the temperature something that helps uh, preserve the film as well? Yes, correct. <laughs> it's uh, around uh, minus four degrees. Uh, and that is ideal conditions for the film. So it's uh, cold and dark up there in the Arctic. Yeah. And but, when it, but it gets colder than, than four degrees, I guess. Oh, yes. I'll find it out <laughs> in the winter so, time. It gets uh, colder and uh, dark. And so what happens when, okay, the, the pitch dark is great, I guess, for yes. the film. But what happens when it goes really much, much less than minus four degrees? So, um, in the mine, uh, you can imagine that uh, our wolf is placed 300 meters inside the mountain. So the temperature there is uh, very stable. Mm. 
So uh, even though the temperature outside the mine is um, getting warmer, it doesn't affect the vault that much. So the vault is actually in the center of the permafrost because up in the Arctic there is permafrost that goes down 300 meters in, in the ground. Mm -hmm. So this vault is 300 meters in and 300 meters below the top of the mountain. So it's actually at the center of the permafrost. So it's a very stable temperature. So it doesn't, it doesn't fluctuate much, the temperature? No, it doesn't fluctuate, fluctuate much. And um, I mean, we have done, done all our longevity testing is actually done in a computer room environment, 21 degrees Celsius, 50% relative humidity. And there, the lifetime of the film has been tested through accelerated aging of be a thousand years. Mm -hmm. But the very unique thing about this medium is actually the colder, the better. So when you store it in, in uh, that vault, which is minus four, we have actually got now a confirmation from a test made by the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment that definitely 2,000 years is, is a lifetime which is reachable. Interesting. So it's not, it's more than a thousand years in theory. It's more. And okay. the colder, the better, the colder, the longer. And uh, are you afraid of global warming, I guess? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, oh, no, in general, <laughs> of course, of course, but uh, right. not concerned uh, when it comes to uh, keeping the, uh, the data alive on Picklefield. But for humanity, of course, global right. warming is not a good thing. Right. Okay, so if, if Svalbard is the perfect place to store humanity's most precious assets because of the weather, for example, why, what are the other reasons why Svalbard is perfect for storing this asset? Yes. Svalbard is just an amazing place. It's a breathtaking place. It's so beautiful up there, and that doesn't harm. Mm -hmm. But uh, it has also a very interesting uh, history. Uh, the island was discovered back in um, high 1596 by a Dutch guy called William Barron. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, he started then to do, understand how rich this island is when it comes to um, natural resources. So after a while, they began some activities up there, uh, a little mining, but there were actually no one that owned uh, the island. And during the early 1900s, it was Norway understood that this place needs to be regulated. And Norway tried three times. They are arranged like something called the Christiania Conference. But they did not manage to get other countries on the table to agree upon an agreement that regulated the, the island. But during the First World War, there were a lot of chaotic things happening in Europe. And after the war, Europe would like to get all the land or borders in order. And then Norway were given the sovereignty of the island. And that is written down in something that is called uh, the Svalbard Treaty that was mm -hmm. signed in 1920. And that means that Norway, uh, Norway law, um, then uh, governing uh, Svalbard, and it is not uh, allowed to have any uh, military activities up there. And the treaty was signed by over 40 countries. Everybody is allowed to go up there and uh, work there and uh, have uh, economical uh, activities up there. What do you mean that everybody can go there and work there? Yes, you don't need a visa to go up there. So, uh, you just need a big jacket, I guess. Yes, correct. And a gun. And a gun. A gun. A gun. What do you mean, a gun? Yes. Uh, this place has more polar bears than people. So there are over 3,000 polar bears up there and a little bit yeah, around uh, 2,400 people uh, or inhabitants. So if you would like to uh, walk outside the city center, it's prohibited to, uh, to have a weapon. So what we say is that uh, our vault is really secure because it's guarded by the polar bear. Oh, wow. But wait, so there are polar bears on the streets? I mean, yes. It's just a few years back, there were uh, spotted a polar bear during night walking down the main street in Longyearbyen. And also, just below the airport, there are camping places where a guy got killed. I think that is two, three years back now. Dutch guy, <clears throat> he was taken for breakfast, actually. 
Oh, my goodness. So you need to be careful. It's too that. early in the morning to get killed. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But if mm. you can say what is really good about the island, there, there's hardly no uh, crimes committed up there. Mm. Okay, so it's, 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 the island is the most secure you can get, basically. Yeah. Also because there's not many human beings. No, it's not. It's really mm -hmm. remote. It's really controlled who is getting in and out, right? It's because you can arrive either on the harbor or you can arrive with the plane. Hmm. So everybody knows everything. <clears throat> and we think it's one of the most secure places actually in the world because to be regulated by an international treaty accepted by all the superpowers, to be a demilitarized zone is a very strong thing. Hmm. And also it is Norway's responsibility uh, to uh, preserve uh, the Svalbard environment. So, you mean the, the environment, you mean the, the, the way this, the city, the town works, or the natural environment? Natural environment as well. So mm. it's uh, quite strictly regulated, um, like snowmobile uh, driving out in the wilderness. So uh, Nor it's Norway's task to uh, keep the nature intact, but not get destroyed. What kind of jobs do people get there? Like what kind of occupations? they have, the locals. Yeah. Uh, originally, this was like a, a mining town. Uh, so a lot of uh, people were working in the mine. And nowadays, a lot of people are working in the tourist industry. And there's also a local uh, government that is uh, elected. So some people work there and you have a little uh, hospital up there and you have schools and different shops and you have tour guides. So it's a different kind of occupation. But there are, uh, it used to be over 50 different nations uh, living up there. I think now it's a little bit uh, uh, less after the um, pandemic. Mm -hmm. But it's really uh, like a melting pot society with a lot of uh, different cultures and uh, people. So is the main language Norwegian or is it English? Um, I think officially it's Norwegian, but in uh, practice, I would say it's English. Yeah, 50 hmm. nationalities. Yeah. You have like a sushi restaurant, you know, yeah. tapas restaurants. It's a very international community. It is, and fantastic oh. And we've been up there. We had people working in the restaurants, Katrina, from, was the one from Colombia? Colombia, there is yeah. a, there's a lady there from Colombia. Yeah. A taxi oh, wow. driver, is it? Mm -hmm. And there's, uh, there was a, a servant from Japan. You know, all over the world. Uh, That's super interesting. And why did, maybe the Colombian person went there because they don't need a visa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding because we, we need visas for everywhere. But, um, okay, that's super, that's super interesting. I mean, um, so what are, so what are the main threats? If it's, we're talking about a very safe environment where all these assets are stored, but uh, what are the main threats when it comes to the, the location itself? What, what do you think? I think it's, it's, um, it's perceived to be a very, very secure place. Hmm. Uh, I mean, one of the inspirations we had to establish the vault up there was actually the global seed vault. Mm -hmm. And basically the world is entrusting uh, Norway and Svalbard and the global seed vault to preserve all the seeds of the important plants of the world for secure food supply in the future. So, I mean, having that trust established is a quite strong point. And then we felt, you know, the Arctic Wall Archive could also benefit from that trust already built around, first of all, Norway is a quite trusted country. It's a stable democracy. And then <clears throat> this island has been there. It's very stable climate. It's geopolitically well-regulated. So if you look at the world and all these kind of conflicts and crises internally and between countries, you know, it's a very, very special, unique place. And to make it even more secure, uh, we are now in the process of turning uh, AVA into a foundation, non-for-profit. Self-owned foundation. Yeah. Self-owned foundation? Self-owned foundation. Uh, Self-owned. Ah, yes. nice. Yes. Okay. So the whole, it... Yeah, because the whole idea, because, you know, Pickle will become a very popular company. And, you know, we are entrepreneurs. You know, one day somebody might walk in here with a billion dollar and say, we want to buy this fantastic technology. And you say, yes. 
and we might we might consider. It you, depends. You never yeah. know. But <laughs> the point is that we we want the Arctic World Archive to be its own thing. Right. Uh, so now we started the process actually to convert the whole thing into this foundation, mm. uh, with the purpose of preserving the client's data forever. Also uh, establishing funds so that we can contribute to those institutions and countries that actually. As I mentioned, they lack funds to help them to actually preserve their memories so that certain cultures, languages, indigenous uh, people can actually have a chance to be kept uh, for the future without having the necessary funds themselves. So our hope is to raise significant capital, you know, from philanthropists around the world to do this uh, thing for the, for the benefit of the world. That's definitely a very good idea. That's definitely fantastic. That? Yeah, I think impact investing is a big thing uh, and hopefully more and more impact investors pop up mm. as opposed to the regular VCs. Mm. Um, so I think that's definitely, uh, I think it's a good move. So it's a, a unique combination here because it's an impact investment, but it's also actually the chance to create content and distribute and share content. Right. Creating actually a revenue source for institutions so they can have more money to spend for more digitization, more restoration, more preservation. Yeah. So have you ever talked self, to self-financed loop? Have you ever talked to companies like Netflix that produce content like crazy and they're super interested in content preserving and creating content themselves? We should. We should. Do you have any contacts? Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe the CEO would listen to this episode. Let's see. Yeah. And the next opportunity is then uh, in the end of uh, June, then we will have uh, another uh, deposit. But what happens in the deposit? Tell us, Catherine. Yes, <laughs> that is, um, we both have like this uh, official program and a social program. So the official program is that everybody that are going to deposit data are invited to Germany and uh, there they can present their uh, valuable <clears throat> items and they will then by themselves put their data into the wall. Or you can also attend online at uh, the online ceremony. And uh, we also have like we invite our smaller guests to go uh, swimming. Uh, they have a nice sauna up there called Svalbard. Uh, where we go in and get really hot and then we jump out in the water uh, between uh, ice and, okay, no polar bears in the water at that time, of course. Uh, so, it's, no, it's really a nice experience. Nice. I've done this in uh, Finland, uh, yeah. in a town called Ulu before. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a crazy, it's a crazy it experience. Is. <laughs> it, is. Yeah. it is. And also, uh, in addition to that, you will then uh, be able to meet um, other people like you that also care about taking care of uh, the world's history. There are a lot of nice discussions and uh, lectures going on up there then. <clears throat> cool. And this is the 29th of June of 2023. Correct. Fantastic. Let's wrap up with the following crazy scenarios. Let's play the following. So imagine, <clears throat> let's say there's a big world event, a war that destroys a great part of the population and the planet. Do you think the Arctic World Archive will survive? Yes. Good. <laughs> That's what I was hoping. <laughs> it, it will. It, it's, first of all, you know, it's the place where it is. Uh, right. Also, it's physically extremely well protected, you know, inside, deep inside the mountain. Uh, so also due to the technology, which is immune to any electromagnetic radiation, immune to radioactive radiation. I mean, if energy is cut off, it doesn't matter. It will still be there. You can just imagine a data center. If that is within, without energy for a few hours, it will shut down. It will be gone because you lose the data. You will not be able to do your backups. And if the hard disks are standing still too long, you cannot spin them up again. Uh, if there is electromagnetic weapons used, all the data on magnetic tape will be wiped out. Even if there is a strong solar storm, that could wipe out uh, data. So it's such a durable <clears throat> and, and uh, solid technology that it'll, it will withstand a lot of the threats that would kill data otherwise. What about a large meteorite <laughs> crashing with our planet? 
Do you think we, we get to the other side with the if, Arctic World Archive as well? Well, if that large meteorite crashes on top of the plateau mountain where we have the vault, I cannot actually give you any guarantees because I never experienced a large meteorite crash. All right. But then I think you might not even need that information. But we have a plan to contact Elon Musk and also to establish a, a repository on Mars. Oh, that's super interesting. That's very ambitious. Good for yes, you. But why not? Of course. That's how it should be. Yes. Should all be more ambitious. What about, is it, is it AVA, is it the Arctic World Archive alien proof? Now talking about aliens this late, late, last weeks, last months. What if they come and they find the treasures? Do you think they can crack them? I think they will be impressed to learn and understand everything uh, about everything there. Uh, but they can never fake it. They can never overwrite it. They can never do anything with it. I mean, in theory, they could, of course, break in and destroy it, in theory. Um, but why would I do that? Because it would be uh, entertainment for them. Right. To learn about this crazy planet, how it was uh, a few hundred years back, that would be uh, interesting. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting already, see all this craziness. But imagine 200, 500 years from now, you look back and you see yeah. everything that we're doing is uh, yeah. Yeah. fantastic and at the same time, crazy. Yes, it is. So we're taking kind of a step back, making things physical, making things tangible, making things simple, making things robust. It's a bit in the other direction of, you know, commodities, smaller, faster, cheaper. Right. But our perspective is different <clears throat> and we think the world needs such a perspective. Right. The perspective of putting stuff that is valuable off the grid and securing it for as long as possible. Exactly. Nice. All right. Rune, Katrin, it was a great pleasure to have you here. I really appreciate you coming. I'm very thankful and grateful that we managed to talk and it was very insightful. I learned a lot from you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. A great honor. It's been great fun. I mean, you're asking a lot of good questions. And I hope Thank that you. Uh, some of your listeners will reflect on this and maybe they think they should make a, a contribution to world memory. Make sure it's Absolutely. Wise. Maybe we meet up on the 29th of June and say hello to the polar bears. Oh, you're more than welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Bring the first 20 episodes. Oh, yeah, that, that would be so cool, actually. I'm going to definitely look into tickets now. Mm. Do that. Cool. Okay. Okay. All right. See you then. Here at the Mr. Rad Show, we provide first-hand information straight from the original source of knowledge. The personal opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect those of Mr. Rad. This show is brought to you by The Rad House, an unbiased, transparent, agendaless, independent media house. Our theme music is written and produced by Marco Mello.